the DeSoto County campus, the fun church in Horn Lake, Mississippi. For more information, visit us at www.mypassion.church. Well, there's a, a writer that most of you probably have heard of, and uh, if I mentioned his name, you would know who I'm talking about. He wrote something called What's Got Your Focus. I was going to read a passage of it to you. He said, The jockeying for position began even before they entered the arena. Their grim faces etched with such determination that their intense focus was almost palatable. All the pregame hype meant nothing now. It had faded like cheap perfume upon the neck of this epic struggle. The finish loomed just ahead, and it would be an up-or-down call. Many lives hanging in the balance. He says, I will never forget those last few moments. The agony wrought in my boy's face as he clung desperately to to his sister's pant leg. Intent on staving off his inevitable defeat, refusing to admit that her speed and strength because of her five-year age advantage had proven insurmountable. With only a few feet left, she lunged for the prize, determined to see new doors open for us all. It was at that very moment the boy's grip on her pants paid off and her jeans began to do the plumber's slide. She hesitated, and it was the only break he needed. He climbed up her back and he slapped that little elevator button before she could even blush. And a warm, magical light appeared. And a resounding ding filled the hall. David had slain Goliath. Do you know who wrote that? Me. (laughs) About my knuckle-headed children when they were little. They would fight over everything. And I remember one day in particular, we were coming into a building, and they were fighting over who gets to press the elevator button to make that little light light up. A true story. Why do I tell you this? Y'all don't know, but I do, and I'll tell you more later. Turn to 1 Chronicles 13.3. You should have known it was my writing by all the extreme adjectives. <laughs> I never met an adjective I didn't like. (laughs) First Chronicles 13, 3. Boy, if we got any visitors in here, they're just shaking their head at me by now, I imagine. (laughs) That's all right. That's all right. First Chronicles 13, 3. We read this scripture last week. You remember we, last week we talked about David's desire to bring the Ark of the Covenant back home to Jerusalem, right? Does everybody know what the Ark of the Covenant is? It was that little box. It was two by, by two by two on the inside, and it was covered with gold, and it had a lid on it. 
And on the top of it, there was gold cherubims, angels facing each other, wings facing each other. It's called the mercy seat. And in the inside of it, they had kept the Ten Commandments that Moses has brought down the mountain and Aaron's rod. And they had put some manna in there. Uh, but really what was in there was symbolizing God's presence. God's presence. He wanted to be with his people. Even in the Old Testament, before that, that they were capable of having Jesus on the inside, before Jesus had even come, God still wanted to be at least with his people. And so he put himself in a box so his, his power and his majesty and his holiness wouldn't zap anybody that was unholy. And at the time, everybody was unholy because Jesus hadn't come yet. But he wanted to be with his people. And David wanted to bring that ark the presence of God back to Jerusalem. And it says in 1 Chronicles 13, 3, he told the people, it's time to bring the ark of our God, back the ark of our God, for we neglected it during Saul's reign. Saul had been the previous king. He didn't care anything about God's presence. The whole assembly agreed to this, for the people could see that it was the right thing to do. What about this whole assembly? Do we agree that it's the right thing to do to bring the presence of God back into our lives? Or do we want to neglect it like Saul? Or do we want to bring it into this, this building so when people come in here, they feel the presence of God? When we walk into the room, do we, we want people to feel the presence of God in our lives? When they walk in our homes, does, does it need to be a different atmosphere than they're used to? Oh, the presence of God, it's worth fighting for. That's what we, I was up there fighting for this morning. I'm willing to fight. Are you willing to fight for the things you believe in? Or you got too much dignity for that? I'm not doing that. You know, the church is a, it's a dignified place. We all talk like that horse Ed, or whatever his name was. Mr. Ed. Mr. Ed. The title of today's message is, What's Got Your Focus? It's all about focus. What you got your eyes on. It's all about God's presence for me. That's what I'm longing for. Because in His presence is fullness of joy. In His presence is everything you need. All the stuff we talk about that we want to accomplish for God we need his presence to do it. I looked it up, you know, and you remember that David went to this guy's house to get the ark. Why did he have to go to some guy's house? That's where the ark was. You remember I made a comment, God in the basement. God's in the basement at some guy's house. The whole nation of Israel had forgotten about God. Here God had come down and put himself in a box and they had locked him away at some fella's house. I don't know if they put him in the basement. That just came to me. But, but something like that. They, put, they locked God away. And it was at this guy named Abinadad's house. But before he got to Abinadad's house, I wanted to know, well, how did it end up in the guy's house? So I, I began to read the scriptures before that. And it was when the Philistines had came in and they had conquered the Israelites and they stole God. <laughs> they stole the ark. And they hauled him away and put him in there. Uh, shrines and temples alongside their false gods. Do you know that the presence of God never really works out for the people that don't want it? 
It doesn't work well for people that don't want the presence of God. They didn't want him. They were putting him in there with some false gods. He made their statues fall over. Things started working bad for the Philistines. And the Philistines said, hey, you take it back. They put it, they put it on, a, on a, another wagon, and they put some cows in front of that wagon, and they just pointed them cows back toward Israel and said, we're sorry. Y'all take this thing back. And it ended up at Abinadad's house. Now, it wasn't just for a couple months. It was at Abinadad's house for 20 years. Now, Abinadad is an Israelite. He lives in Israel. He's one of God's chosen people. So surely it just began to bless the house of Abinadad. But it didn't. I thought it did, but I went back and ran. It didn't say anything about it blessing Abinadad. In fact, Abinadad's son was the guy, Yuza, who was, reached his hand up to help steady the ark when David came to get it, and it was Yuza who got zapped by the holiness of God. His own son. And I'm thinking, Abinadad, didn't you teach your son nothing? You had, the, you had God in the house for 20 years and you didn't teach your, even your children about the holiness of God? What are we teaching our children? About the presence of God. Oh, we just take it for granted? Surely the presence of God should bless the children of God, but not if you don't care about his presence. You should bless the church, but if you don't care about his presence, then you see churches all over the place has no presence of God. They're not hungry for the things of God. God says that if you hunger and thirst after righteousness, if you knock, if you seek, if you ask, are we asking for the presence of God is the question today. Well, anyway... When David made his first move on the ark to go get it, we remember he put it on a cart too, and that was not the way it was supposed to be carried. Yuzah got zapped. David got mad. He's like, what in the world, God? And I, I guess they must have been at in front of Obed-Edom's house because that's where he dropped it off at next. David said, uh-oh, let, let's put it over this guy's house. I'm going to go back and study this thing out and see how we're supposed to move it because obviously it's not on a cart. And so they dropped it off at another guy's house named Obed-Edom. In 1 Chronicles 13, 14, it says the ark remained there at Obed-Edom's house for three months. And the Lord blessed the household of Obed-Edom and everything he owned. Now this is the first one that I see where God started blessing the household because of the presence. Why? Do you think maybe it was because he welcomed the presence? He wanted the presence, he valued the presence, and it began to work for him. Do you value the presence of God in your life? We all say, oh, yes, brother. I love God's presence. But, I mean, do we really? I mean, don't look at your neighbor. Think about your life. How much do you value the, God's pre the Lord's presence? If I were to look at your checkbook, and it says, you know, where your money lies, there your treasure is, you know. If I were to look at your checkbook, would it reflect that you love God's presence in your life? If I were to look at your Google calendar, would it reflect that you love the things of God? If I were to, well, we're not going to meddle. 
Is the church optional to you? You just come when you feel like it? Is the Bible just like more a, a list of pretty good suggestions to you? Is prayer like the last resort after you've tried everything you know to do? Oh, has it come to that? We're going to have to pray now. And you really don't expect it to work because it's your last resort. If you expected prayer to work, it'd be your first thing you do. Do we think that real worship is just a slow song that we play here on Sunday? Is that what true worship is? A slow song? And you maybe get three minutes of that a week? Is God's presence in your life about as exciting to you as your Jelly of the Month Club membership? Huh? Or do you really want to build a home for God? David wanted to build a home for God. That's why he was bringing the ark home. He, was, he valued the presence of God. King Saul didn't. King Saul had been king. God had made him king, but Saul had never made God Lord. And King Saul just wanted to keep up appearances. He just wanted everybody to think he was a godly man. He wanted everybody to think that he was seeking God. Had some priest named Samuel that was really doing all his seeking for him. Keeping up appearances. Say, keeping up appearances. You could describe Saul in 2 Timothy 3, 5, where it says they will act religious, but they will reject the power that can make them godly. Oh. They can act religious. That's an easy thing to do. But you know, you may fool some people, you may even fool yourself. That's a sad place to be in when you fool yourself. But you can't fool God. And really, that's the audience that we're living for, isn't it? That's the audience that we're playing to. If you got your life dialed in, then you understand that you're living for an audience of one. Everything else flows from that. You're centered, you're balanced. He's the wheel in the middle of your wheel. He's one that makes everything in your life work out. People will act religious, but they will reject the power that could make them godly. What's the power that can make them godly? The presence of God. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. It says stay away from people like that. And how many people do we have in America these days that are just going through religious motions? David desperately wanted to build, not only bring the, the ark of God's presence back into Jerusalem, he wanted to build a, a brick-and-mortar house for God. He desperately wanted to honor God and give him a place. He, he said, I see the ark and it's kept in a tent, you know. Let's make a house for God. And God basically told him, son, you already have in your heart. And see, that's where God has always wanted to live anyway. Between your rib cages. That was the purpose for Jesus come, to come so that he could live in us. And we could be restored to right relationship. That's where God desires to live. In 2 Samuel 
7.16, God tells David, your house and your kingdom will continue before me for all time, and your throne will be secure forever. Wouldn't that be a good feeling? What if God told you, told you that you'll be secure forever? You'll always be on the throne. I got you. Well, he's already told us that. We're already there. Are we thankful for it? Are we living it to the fullest? But God said, you know what, David? You're not the one to build my temple. I'm going to get your son Solomon to do it. But you know what David did? He didn't get all pouty and say, well, I didn't get to build a temple. He said about collecting cedar from Lebanon and woods and precious gold. He started bringing in treasures so that when he was gone, King Solomon, his son, would be anointed king. All he would have to do is, is do the building. But David was doing everything he could. See, everybody's got a part to play in building the house of God. You understand? And so David began to collect, and he began to, to fund the thing, so to speak. He was going to do everything that God would allow him to do. Solomon, his son, had been raised up in the household of David, and it sure seemed like he had learned something. First thing Solomon says is, well, the first thing God does is say, Solomon, what can I do for you? And Solomon says, he didn't ask for riches and gold. He said, God, give me wisdom and knowledge to lead your people. That pleased God. Because he, he was, that was a thought about building the house of God. That was making a place for God, right? Let me lead your people. You know who the people are? The house of God. So he wanted wisdom and knowledge to be able to lead God's people. And God said in 2 Chronicles 1.12, he said, I will certainly give you the wisdom and knowledge you have requested, but I will also give you wealth and riches and fame such as no other king has had before you or will ever have in the future. And we know it, that God put it on him. He was the wisest man in, recorded in Scripture, the richest man. He had everything. Reminds me of that Scripture in Matthew 6.33. says, Seek ye first the God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added unto you. See, we're seeking all the things. Many Christians are seeking all the blessings of God. They're not seeking God. But the Scriptures say that the blessings shall overtake thee. How can they overtake thee if you're chasing them? You should be chasing God. The blessings will overtake thee. It's a correct understanding of where, what's got your focus, right? Sadly, oh Solomon, he built the house of God, but later in his life, the pull of that fame and riches and success he began to womanize. He began to, would you believe he began to worship false gods of some of his many wives? <laughs> he had like hundreds of wives. Man, it was, he got off track. He let the pull of this world get him. And how many people do I know? Many who've been in this church. They came here. They were broken. They were without hope. 
Their marriages were torn apart. God healed their marriage. God got their children back. He got them a job. He got them a place to live. He gave them purpose and destiny. He broke bondages out of their life, the drug addictions and everything. He gave them hope again. Begin to see purpose in their life. He gave them a relationship, and he gave them exactly what we're saying here today. All the treasures of this world were added unto them. But as soon as they get up back on their feet again, they begin to enjoy the blessings of God a little too much. They begin to think the blessings of God just, that, that maybe they had something to do with it. I don't know what they begin to think. But you begin to see them begin a slow fade. Just since I've been pastor three or four years, there's couples and people that I could tell you about right now that I've seen God resurrect their life. And they're not here in church today. It hadn't been for months. They began a slow fade. They begin to think, well, now that I've got everything I want, I don't need God anymore. They're not saying that in their mind, but that's the way they begin to behave. And before you know it, the pull of this world pulls them right back down to where they were before. They used to come on Wednesdays, but they don't come on Wednesdays anymore. They used to come every Sunday. Now they come every now and then. It's a slow fade. Maybe life isn't about building your house. Maybe life isn't about building God's house. Solely. Maybe it's about building a house that you can live in with God. What does the scripture say? Unless the Lord buildeth the house, he that labor, labors in vain. Isn't that what the, your scriptures say? If you're not building it with the Lord, if you're not living in it with the Lord, what good is it? Who's willing to go farther in the garden? I love to see those hands. God loves to see those hands. You know, Jesus and his disciples, they ate the Last Supper together. They sang a hymn. And Jesus said, come on, we're going to the garden. They got to the garden. And Jesus said, hold on. Got to the edge of the garden. He said, y'all sit down here. Peter, you're ready. James, John, y'all come with me. Most of the disciples stayed at the edge of the garden, but he took three, and they went a little further. And he got to a point, he said, y'all stay here, watch and pray. But it was only Jesus that went the rest of the way. It was only Jesus who went the rest of the way to where he could say, Father, not my will, but thine be done. The rest of them weren't there yet. The pull of the flesh, they couldn't even pray one hour. It was only Jesus who could pray one hour, sweat great drops of blood, basically tell God, my life is yours. Do what you would to me. They all drank of the same cup of his blood at, at the supper, ate of his broken body at the supper. But when the time of temptation came, they all fell away. 
There was only one that went that last step. Does that make us feel better about ourselves? Do we really want to be the ones at the foot of the mountain partying it up and having orgies and, and drinking and, and doing all these things, worshiping a golden calf when God comes down the mountain to get us? We've been invited to the top of the mountain. Moses came down after spending some time with the Lord, and he told the people, sanctify yourselves. Wash your clothes. Abstain from every evil. Get ready. Get ready. Get ready, because God's coming down the mountain to welcome you up. Thunder and lightning flashed as he did. And it wasn't no Garth Brooks song. Real thunder, real lightning, real smoke. And the mountains quaked and the people quaked too. They weren't ready for the Lord. And they told Moses in Exodus 20, 19, you speak to us, we'll listen, but don't let God speak directly to us or we'll die. They were scared of God. And they're like a lot of churches today. Pastor, you hear from God. You tell us what he says. I'm not doing it myself. What do you, you're getting paid for that. It's not that they fear God nowadays. It's that they have no fear for God nowadays. No fear of God. God said, if I come down the mountain and I blow the ram's horn, that means you can come up. That sounds an awful lot like what's fixing to happen when he comes back for his church. Moses went up the mountain because he was a friend of God. He was the only one that went up the mountain. He didn't care. He came down with the Ten Commandments. And he came down with his face shining. The people couldn't even look at him because he had seen the glory of God. And his face was radiating. You don't have to tell your, your friends that you're a Christian. Your face should be radiating the presence of God. Turn to 2 Corinthians 3, 7 if you don't believe me. And turn there if you do. If you spent time with God, it will be evident if you're filling out your sheets. Am I yelling at y'all? I saw it. I'm trying to wake you up in more ways than one. You see, as a preacher, as a pastor, I want to be a, a good sh shepherd of God's flock. And this is the, my main concern is that we would be like a lot of other churches who have no desire for the things of God. We're pretenders. I can't stand the thought of that I am held accountable for how you act. <laughs> or at least for what I tell you. If there's one thing, I mean, my children and my wife can tell you, I'm not a pretender. I really believe this stuff that I preach. I'm not bragging on myself because I've been made a fool. I'm willing to be made a fool for Christ. I don't care. I am sold out. I am whole hog as I once preached. 
And I'm telling you, I believe in the presence of God so much. I love him so much that I'm preaching this message to me to remind me of some things. I'm preaching it to you so that you can know the joy of your salvation. The real deal. It's not the goodies. It's not about that. It's about the good, the goodest, the gooder. It's about the giver. I'm just making stuff up as I go. 2 Corinthians 3, 7. I know I'm goofy. I've had a rough morning. I woke up. Didn't, we hadn't had week, uh, heat for weeks in the house. And uh, I woke up, took a cold shower, and I was wondering why the water was cold. Went upstairs, and the water heater's leaking. It's coming all through the ceiling in the spare bedroom. Whoo! And I was glad for that video this morning. I'm glad there was water to come through the ceiling. <laughs> Amen. Second Corinthians 3, 7. It says the old way with laws etched in stone. You see, the old way was the old covenant. It was the Ten Commandments. They were etched in stone. But God's trying to write a new law in our hearts. The old way, the laws etched in stone, led to death. Though it began with such glory that the people of Israel could not bear to look at Moses' face. For his face shone with the glory of God, even though the brightness was already fading away. Shouldn't we expect far greater glory under the new way? Now that the Holy Spirit is giving life, the new covenant... If the old way which brought condemnation was glorious, how much more glorious is the new way that makes us right with God? In fact, the first glory was not glorious at all compared with the overwhelming glory of the new way. We're living in the New Testament, a, a far greater promise, a better covenant. Secure forever by the blood of Jesus. We can come boldly before his throne of grace in our time of need. The veil has been rent. Moses put a veil over his face. They put a veil in front of the Ark of the Covenant. But when Jesus said it's finished, the veil was rent. We, don't, we can look upon Jesus now. We have him in our hearts. After the, after the disciples got filled with the Holy Spirit, they weren't the little sniveling pipsqueaks that they were before. They weren't scared anymore. They were standing up to the same people that crucified Jesus. In Acts 4.13, the members of the council were amazed when they saw the boldness of Peter and John. For they could see that they were ordinary men with no special training in the Scriptures. They also recognized them as men who had been with Jesus. These religious people, they were supposed to be the ones everybody was looking at. But everybody was looking at these two ordinary guys. And even the religious people said something's different about them. I see the same thing in them that we saw in that Jesus that we crucified. He had the religious, they had the religious people shaking in their boots. 
The devil too. Because they had been with Jesus. And he had rubbed off on them. Have you been with Jesus? They'd gone past that point of no return that I prayed about this morning. Brother Joe called me up this week. Joe been past the point of no return. Joe called me up. He was so excited about what Jesus is doing in his life and his family and his, his countenance and his peace and his joy. He went on for like 25, 30 minutes. I didn't get a word in edgewise. He was talking in a high voice. It was a, I mean, he was so excited. He was acting a fool like I've been acting a fool this morning. He's gone past the point of no return. You can't tell him Jesus ain't real. He's saved, saved. I don't know how to say it because a lot of people say they're saved, but some people are saved, saved. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. Woo! I spent 32 years of the Lord serving the devil. When I got saved, I got saved, saved. I wasn't playing. I remember having a supernatural experience with God one night, and then I went over to my brother's house for the Super Bowl party. This was that first, right when I got saved. And I sat down, he cut the TV on, the football game was going, he handed me a beer, and just out of uh, my normal routine, I went to put it to my lips, and I thought to myself, I just spoke with God last night. <laughs> I set that beer down and said, I don't drink no more. And I ain't drank a beer since then. Things begin to fall off my life. My life began to change. I got saved, saved. I went past the point of no return. I'm telling you, you got to make it real. If it ain't real like that to you, you ain't pressing in hard enough because he's not withholding it. Get up at daylight every morning and my wife is already up in there sitting at the table with four Bibles laid out and her and the candles burning and stuff and, and spending time with the Lord. She's been past the point of no return. She gets up extra early in the morning before daylight most of the time for, for her coffee. She loves her coffee. But, <laughs> but the second thing in her life is Jesus. That's the best part of waking up. That's just, it's not Folgers. All right. That's right. J.R. Rim says every second that goes by is a point of no return. Time is ticking. If you're not going to serve him now, when are you going to really get in? Are you waiting right before he comes back and saying, oh, I'm going to get my life right? You don't know when he's coming back. <laughs> I pray that we all past the point of no return. That's my prayer for you. Not that you do this and get a job. Pray for your physical needs and all that. But, but when I pray for, I pray that our church gets a real relationship with Jesus. The real deal. Because all the rest of it will take care of itself. Oh, son. Can you say I've been too far with Jesus to go back? Some people tried to tell me that, that the Holy Ghost was passed away, that the, the gifts of the Holy Spirit were passed away. They couldn't, I couldn't believe that because I've been swimming in that pool for too long. I know there's water, and you can't tell me there ain't water in that pool. I can't go back to the way things used to be. How many would say, I can't go back to the Jelly of the Month Club, Pastor? 
I can't go back to a form of godliness but denying the power of knowing him. I can't go back to, to building his house but not living in it with him. I can't go back to being dropped off at the edge of the garden. I want to go all the way. I want to go to the top of the mountain. I want to be with him. I don't want to know about him. I want to know him. You know, I wanted to, at this point, I thought, well, I, I'll tell them how to get to know Jesus. I'll give them some pointers. And I thought to myself, good Lord, I don't have to tell them how to get to know Jesus. Them little babies back in the back know that much. They're being taught how to read the Bible, how to pray, how to worship, how to spend time alone with God. They're taught that back there. You know how to, Jesus said, uh, Jeremiah says, if you search for me with your whole heart, you'll find me. There ain't no secret. It's just a heart issue. I don't need to tell you how to get your focus right. You just got to want to. And if you didn't know you're supposed to, now you do. And if you didn't know it will benefit you, now you do. And if you didn't know every, every, every other thing is just sinking sand, now you do. And if you didn't know that if you get on an elevator without Jesus, the only direction you're going is down. So you can fight like little kids all you want. Knock it out, see who's going to get to push that little elevator button. And all you're going to get is a little glow. That's about how much glory you're going to get of God. Just a little elevator button. But I'm ready to go to the rooftop. I'm ready to have Jesus smooth in the middle of my elevator. I'm ready to go up with him. I'm ready to go to the mountaintop. I'm ready to come down and share the glory with others and go back up again. What's got your focus? Thanks for listening to the podcast today. We hope you enjoyed it and that it inspires you to live out God's Word. For more information, visit us at www.mypassion.church. Amen.